Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. My substack is kevinbarrett.substack.com, where you can get early access to these shows. And my other website is truthjihad.com. And you might also see my work at veteranstoday.com or theunsreviewunz.com. Tonight, we are talking about traditional family values and their opposite. Talked a little bit about John Carter's articles about the devouring mother of the digital longhouse and things like that. The masculinity versus femininity questions. Are you allowed to accept that there is a difference between men and women these days? Etc. 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 Well, over in Iran and indeed in most of the non-Western world, people are pretty comfortable with the traditional sexual distinctions and the traditional family values. And yet, we have a kind of a crusade going on to reform Iran, to overthrow the Islamic Republic and rip the veils off the heads of the women and force them to be more like us. And to do that, we've enlisted the royalists, the family of the ex-Shah, and the world's craziest terrorist group, the MEK. Will they succeed in ripping the veils off all the Iranian women? Well, let's ask J. Michael Springman. He just got back from Iran, and he was very busily counting the number of women who were running around without headscarves, the number who had bad hijab, and the others who were wearing hijab more normally or traditionally. And he just wrote about it in a new article, Modern Iran, A Study in Contrast, Part 1, Women. That's in his substack, which I think is the Hausfrau Leak substack or something like that. Anyway, he'll tell you about it. Hey, welcome, J. Michael Springman. How you doing? Well, thank you for having me on. I purely enjoy this. And here's Frau Leaks. And um, I spent a bit more than the land of the she and the home of the brave. And I saw all sorts of women covered in foot in black. Uh, no, Mike, Mike, let me, let me just stop, stop. Let, let me interrupt you briefly. Are you on Skype right now? Yes, I am. You know, you're having a little bit of the same problem that you were having on False Flag Weekly News through your internet interface. So it might be better if we could call you back on your phone line. I don't know if Mr. Rowe hears us here, but that would probably be a good idea because you're you're cutting out a little bit again. Okay, sure. Use the phone. Okay. So if Mr. Rowe hears us, uh, he's going to hang up on you on Skype and then call you back on the phone. And if he doesn't hear us, he won't. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, Mr. Rowe is listening and can can, pull, can do that. So anyway, yeah, go, go ahead. So you're you're telling me about the uh, the women that you saw. Oh, looks like Mr. Rowe heard us because we're going to bring J. Mike back up on his phone. It appears that not only does Zoom have this cutting Hi. out issue, but also Skype does. Hey, welcome, Mike. I guess we got you on the phone now. Thank you, Mr. Rowe. By the way, good job there. <laughs> All right, so welcome back, Mike. Well, it's good to be here, and uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, the um, uh, the Substack site is Housefrau Leaks, and when I spent a bit more than a week in Iran, in, in Tehran, in Shiraz, and in uh, Kerman, uh, I saw a variety of women covered, uncovered, and somewhere in between. Uh, the um, traditional covering, of course, is the uh, a black robe from uh, neck to ankles, uh, uh, sometimes coupled with a code called the Mantu. And uh, there is also this uh, 
cowl with a hood on it, uh, and it's kind of warm inside. I saw a woman uh, flapping the edges of it to get some uh, cool air underneath. Maybe she was just try- uh, she was trying to fly. <laughs> a flying shador, <laughs> sort of like the flying nun. I remember that TV yeah. series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was, you know, the women with no coverings on their head whatsoever, not even a hair ribbon. And uh, a lot of people in between. You had uh, the traditional hijab or a scarf of some kind pushed to the back of the head or maybe the middle of the head. Uh, And uh, this is not really something new. I read about it in uh, Lipstick Jihad by an Iranian author who was really very good at writing. And uh, she talks about growing up Iranian in California and growing up American in Iran and uh, She felt that uh, in one country like the United States, she was sort of an alien. And when she went to Iran to visit relatives, she was also feeling like an alien. Uh, But the point is that she had made uh, comments that years ago in 2005 when the book came out, uh, women were uh, cocking a snook at all the regulations on the hijab. and They were pushing their uh, their scarves to the backs of their heads uh, so that uh, pretty much all of their hair was exposed, and yet they were in compliance with regulations. They had something on their head. Five years ago, when I went to the New Horizon conference that uh, the, uh, the Zionist uh, Israeli, who had been uh, under Secretary of the Treasury for uh, Terrorism and International Finance... Yes, Sigal Mendelker. Uh, that's her. Uh I was at an airport in, in Tehran and saw one woman, very attractive and young, and she had her hair in a ponytail with a big scarf tied to it. So I guess that can constituted uh, some sort of hijab. Nobody said a word. Uh, the religious police were not in evidence. So I, I think it's pretty much uh, what you want to do and how you want to do it or something in between. Uh, the uh, uh, the women I saw were kind of relaxed, and when I contacted one of our uh, people there, uh, who was Iranian, and I said, well, you know, what do you think? Are they as relaxed as I think they are? And he said, yeah. Uh, and he viewed the uh, uh, the scarf versus the scarf types as maybe four out of every ten of women, generally in their 20s and 30s, uh, were um, uh, not wearing any kind of head covering. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute, Mike. That's that's four out of ten total women, or just in that particular age group? Because when I I was there for a part of that time, same time that you were, and I didn't ever see any place where it was even remotely like that. I mean, even in the airport where you get all these sort of westernized mm-hmm. uh, German women, you know, Iranian Germans and stuff like that, who who mm-hmm. take off their headscarves when they get to Germany, or even when they get on the plane. Mm-hmm. But in the airport. Everybody, except uh, very few, maybe 5%, about 1 out of 20, maybe 1 out of 15, were not wearing anything. But all the rest of them had some kind of cloth on their hair. So, uh, And that hasn't been enforced since October. So now mm-hmm. you know, what we can see is that the vast, what I saw anyway, was the vast majority are keeping some kind of cloth on their hair, even though they no longer have to. Well, yes and no. The guy said four out of ten were uncovered. I I don't know whether it's that high, but uh, I saw more and more women uncovered as uh, the week went on. Was that and like in, in Shiraz? Uh, in Shiraz, uh, on the plane, and uh, in uh, in Kermont as well. Um, when I was at the uh, this trade fair and exhibition in Tehran. Uh, I saw a lot of women without coverings. Uh, I saw one uh, Iranian woman with a uh, 
kind of a cap on her head uh, with long flowing blonde hair and spilling out from underneath of it. And she was selling her designer wear. She designed uh, women's clothes that combined uh, uh, traditional Iranian uh, styles with uh, foreign ones, mostly from Latin America. And uh, she uh, was uh, sort of unusually uncovered, I guess you would say, since she had kind of a cap on with all this hair. Wait, 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 wait a minute. I mean, technically, though, I mean, the, the having some form of hijab in Iran, it really just means having any kind of cloth on the hair. And then there's bad hijab, which is like really having a tiny little piece of cloth way at the very bottom of the hair. And then mm-hmm. there's everything in between. But the distinction yeah. would be between having something like that and having nothing at all on the hair. And what I'm saying is what I saw in the streets of Tehran, in the airport, and wherever else I went there was the vast majority had still had something on their hair, even though they don't have to. Well, a lot of people did. Uh, and, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a variety of, of, of styles from uh, uncovered to push to the back of the head to a scarf or something like this. So it's um, – I, I seem to get the impression that the longer I was there, the more uncovered women I saw. Yeah, it sounds like maybe in Shiraz when you if did you go to the university in Shiraz? Yes, we did, and they were all covered there. Oh, interesting. Okay, because I would have thought maybe the university would be the place where they weren't. But interestingly, the one of the things about the hijab that most people don't realize is that it led to a tr- dramatic increase in female education because prior to the 1979 revolution, the conservative families who make up a majority of Iranian families were afraid to send their daughters to those hotbeds of iniquity, the universities. <laughs> and after the revolution, by putting on hijab, which sends the signal, basically, that, you know, I'm not a piece of meat, I'm a spiritual being, that and, and that's respected uh, within the culture, suddenly it was cool for young women to go to universities. And so mm-hmm. it went from a, t- a tiny fraction of women uh, went to universities back prior to 1979, and today women are a majority of university students in Iran, as well as uh, very well uh, in, represented in all sorts of professions. So you know, even the hijab even brought in hitchhiking. I don't know how many years it was post-1979 that you actually could see lots of female hitchhikers all over Tehran because that Islamic ethic of women being spiritual beings, not pieces of meat, led men to be chivalrous. And that's that's really what the hijab culture is, is all about. And in most countries, of course, it is not legally enforced. And, of course, it's the women themselves who are the main deciders of whether they're going to wear the hijab. And to the extent that anybody other than the individual has any influence, it's going to be the women in the family. It's the aunts and the grandmothers and the mothers and so on who tend to make these and other cultural decisions. They are the real custodians of the culture, and they are the real cultural conservatives. So the feminists who think they're liberating women by stripping the clothes off their bodies or off their heads and turning them into pieces of meat to be devoured by men, their their main enemies in countries like Iran and other traditional countries are actually the, the women, the older women. Well, I did get a note on my Facebook page I saw just a few minutes ago uh, from a journalist noting that uh, the situation in Iran apparently is kind of like Iraq in the 1980s. Uh, before the Americans moved in and destroyed the place, that people are loosening up, that uh, uh, people are going more their own way. Uh, at Shiraz University, I did rank into a woman who was not covered at all. She was wearing a, a 
pair of pants and a, um, a long sweater and nothing at all on her head. And she said she felt more comfortable that way. And I was kind of surprised and wondered how many others were like her at the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, in the Islamic world, that's normal. In Muslim countries, there are those who think that hijab is a mandatory Muslim thing. There are a lot of people who don't think that. And there are all sorts of different ways of complying with the Quranic injunction that's been internalized into the culture to be modest. And of course, modesty is considered more important for women for kind of obvious biological reasons, because men mm. become you know, predatory. Uh, through their eyeballs arouse them to become predatory. And the women are the things that arouse their eyeballs. And women are not really aroused to become predatory through their eyeballs the way that men are when they look at men. So therefore, modesty for males is not really as big a deal in terms of maintaining a very peaceful and spiritual society as modesty for women. And that, that, that somehow what, I, I just wonder why Western people don't get this. It just seems to me it's so basically in line with universal human nature. You know, the, the details are not, I mean, you know, how much cloth you put on your head to say, to signal what that's, that's all part of, you know, different cultures are going to do that differently, but the basic principle of modesty be contributing to peace and spirituality in the society and that women being the main carriers of modesty. I mean, to me, that's just obvious and universal and Islam is just conscious of it in a way that dumber and more primitive and barbaric societies are not. Well, maybe I could add a little bit there. I I think a lot of instances where women do cover up, it's practical. I mean, in the days before sunscreen, uh, you know, a veil or a uh, hijab or some sort of head covering uh, kept the sun and salt and sand and dust off your face and out of your hair. That's true. And and there are practical reasons to be able to uncover at times, too, such as getting some vitamin D by getting some sun. So all of this involves all sorts of practical issues and some trade-offs and so on. But I do think that the principle of uh, female modesty is is a really good one, and modesty in general, of course, and that includes modesty of behavior on the part of men. I think the men have to work, uh, be more concerned with the modesty of behavior and lowering their gaze and things like that, the women more with the modesty of dress and comportment. And uh, anyway, so Iran is is not like this revolutionary place where there's, you know, millions of people in the streets screaming against the government. Whip, all the women are ripping off their headscarves, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's kind of the impression we were getting from the mainstream coverage. Oh, yeah, of course. And, of course, the mainstream coverage uh, either didn't know the first thing about Iran or had never been there. Uh, and were simply repeating what they were directed to by the wonderful people occupying the American government. Uh, you know, you, you read this stuff and uh, you, you wonder uh, where they're getting it from because you go into Iran and you don't see anything at all like what they're writing about here on the, uh, in the Washington Post or on uh, NBC News or anything else. It's uh, totally out of reality, uh, much like the, the reporting on the, uh, the uh, war in Ukraine against the neo-Nazis there. That's right. Yeah, so I, I recently had on uh, Setara Siddiqui, who is an Iranian woman, along with Christopher Weaver. I recorded that, I think, yesterday, actually, on the show. I've been really busy here, Mike. <laughs> I got back from Iran, and I had to hop the plane to California to David Ray Griffin's memorial, and then just got back home and have to hop the plane to Morocco uh, tomorrow, and so on and so forth, mm. keeping uh, very, very busy. But anyway, Setara Siddiqui, uh, who I interviewed yesterday, 
was talking about these issues too, and how the you know, the Western media is distorting its coverage. And what I heard from her, what I heard from the people in Iran as well, is that these kind of CIA-funded demonstrations uh, were really not very big. You know, the, the coverage here mm-hmm. never told you precisely how many people showed up. And the reason is that it's not very impressive. The very biggest one apparently was about 600 people, and that was at that big famous square in Tehran. Uh, most of them are much smaller than that. So there really was never any widespread uh, protest movement. But when they could get a few hundred people together, apparently then the Operation Gladio folks would go into action and start burning and looting, and some of them would be actually shooting people, uh, whether shooting cops to make the cops think it's the demonstrators or shooting the demonstrators to make them think it's the cops. That's how they start civil wars. And it yeah. worked in oh, Syria, yeah, worked old, in Ukraine. Yeah. yeah, it's the old CIA playbook. Yeah, And as I noted in my article that... Uh, uh, the CIA and Mossad, uh, the apartheid entity that calls itself Syria's external security service, uh, they've manipulated the Kurds for years uh, and then pulling the rug out from under them when it became convenient or, to do so. Uh, so I, I think that uh, this is another thing that the, the news media missed or didn't bother to consider or uh, did but didn't want to give the impression that uh, uh, there might be another side to the story. Right. Well, one of the interesting things that Safara Siddiqui talked about, uh, as well as Christopher Weaver, was that I guess uh, Christopher had gone to a run on some some event, and I think it was related to Code Pink. And uh, Medea Benjamin of Code Pink has been totally taken in by this CIA Soros propaganda about the wonderful feminist revolution in Iran, where all the women want to follow that crazy woman who leads the MEK and rip off their headscarves and put the MEK in power, all this nonsense. And you know, I, I would have expected more from Medea, but I think, you know, when I reflected on this, I realized that back when I had, you know, I, I first met Medea on this radio show, she came on my show and she was very open-minded to 9-11 truth. In fact, she kind of at that time supported it. She, of course, was, you know, she leans left politically and she didn't like Bush and Cheney. So that had something to do with it. And then the next time I met her was in Iran. She came to one of our conferences back 10 years ago or so. And there she was sort of a lone uh, non 9-11 truther. And she was very angry that everybody else except her in the whole city of Tehran, it seemed like, was a conspiracy theorist. And, uh, <laughs> but the, I think, quote, Ping, I, I, Forget whether this is a rumor or a confirmed fact, but as I understand it, mm-hmm. they do get some Soros money. And mm-hmm. Soros, of course, is CIA. And yeah. there's a great piece recently uh, by, uh, oh, uh, what's his name? C.J. C- Hopkins, who wrote about how glo- global capitalism is trying to destroy all human relations and all centers of power except for the free market economic money relationship in every other relationship, whether it's a relationship of, of people to a traditional culture, to a religion, uh, to a, uh, to political leaders outside of the economy, political leaders who are not bought and sold by oligarchs, they're trying to destroy that. And so it's ironic that people like Medea Benjamin and Code Pink are in bed with Soros, who pretends to be a leftist, mm-hmm. but Soros is really a capitalist in C.J. Hopkins' sense because Soros is out to destroy all human relationships, especially traditions and religions and so on, that are not 
bought and sold. Soros wants a world in which money completely rules everything and has no competition <laughs> whatsoever. Now, that's not leftism to me. Leftism was actually a reaction against that. You know, Karl Marx said yeah. that, you know, the Jews have taken money as their God and, and pretty much the rest of society is following them. And that that's wrong, and that you know Marx led a, a school of thought, a revolutionary school of thought against that. But today, most of the people who are sort of the cultural Marxists and the you know the, they, they, I don't think they even have read Marx. Most of them, these so-called left wingers who follow George Soros, the ultimate capitalist. All these people, uh, alongside their neocon friends, are all part of a kind of global crusade to make the world safe for money by destroying religion, destroying tradition, destroying family values, destroying everything except for money power. And and so Medea's actually working for money power if she's taking money from Soros, mm -hmm. and that would explain why she's on the side of the CIA fake uh, demonstrations in Iran. Well, I have my own views on Madame Benjamin, whose given name is Susan. She has a lot of money and a lot of connections. And I really wonder how progressive she is. Uh, at one point, I was introduced to her at a reception, and the guy doing the introducing was touting my book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World. And she absolutely had absolutely no interest in that. Uh, I was at the National Press Club uh, a couple of years ago uh, at a program hosted by John Edward Hurley, uh, and Medea was there speaking. She had been to Fort McNair, here in Washington, D.C., and had uh, interrupted uh, Barack Obama's speech at the National War College a couple of times. Uh, I, I and, love when uh, she does stuff like that. I mean, I, I have to cheer for yeah. that. Well, yes and no, because she would do this repeatedly, and eventually she was quietly led away. When Ray McGovern turned his back on Hillary Clinton at George Washington University, he was beaten up and arrested. But wait a minute, so Medea got be she got beaten up in Egypt. Yeah, they broke her rib know. or something, didn't they? Yeah, well, I don't. I have no idea. But I know that at Fort McNair, uh, she talked about this, and I said, well, you know, I've just been down to Fort McNair along with John Edward Hurley, and we had to provide our Social Security number, name and date of birth, uh, make and model and color of the car, and, and uh, practically our, uh, our toenail size to get onto the base. And how is it that they let you on since you are a known activist and supposedly are a counterculture type and are very hostile towards a uh, an overbearing government? And she smirked and said, well, I have my ways. So I, I think hmm. that uh, uh, she puts up a good front. Uh, she has a lot of money to do it and a lot of connections that uh, disguise the fact that uh, she's one of Soros's people. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it looks to me, too. And it's, it's too bad because she does a lot of cool stuff, but... Anyway, yeah, the uh, I, I guess you know where you stand on, on things like Iran and nine eleven, and maybe you know JFK. There are some of these issues that really separate the honest, uh, well-informed people from the those who are less honest or less well-informed, and, mm -hmm. and you know people like her and Chomsky. I, I just reposted my lecture uh, why Chomsky's wrong about nine eleven. You know, people like that uh, seem to me to be a really mixed blessing at best in that whatever good they're doing then often ends up being part of uh, a kind of a, a sheep corralling operation, right? Where, where Chomsky, you know, keeps everybody quiet. He, he, he basically totally just neutered the left on 
And he, he also mm-hmm. played that kind of role with the JFK assassination as well. And now here, here's Medea, like, you know, cheerleading for the CIA arsonists and, and vandals and, and murderers in Iran. It's kind of, it's, mm-hmm. it's disillusioning. So, so yeah, g- yeah. G- getting back to your trip. Uh, so uh, I, I was with you in Tehran for just a couple of days and I had to fly back for the David mm-hmm. Ray Griffin Memorial. And then you went on to Shiraz, the university. Uh, you know, it's, it was weird being invited over by the University of Shiraz, and then I, I can't even make it to Shiraz. Uh, but you guys actually did get to go to that university. Right. And uh, they had a pretty good crowd, first uh, with uh, professors at the university, and then there was a, a group of students, mostly women there as well. And um, Scott Bennett talked about... Uh, religion in, in general, uh, Christianity and how it linked up with, uh, Islam and the, um, um, uh, the students just ate it up and, and mobbed him at the end of the, the lecture, uh, cause they, they loved what he was saying and then relating, uh, uh, the better points of Christianity with the better points of Islam. Well, that's interesting. And it's kind of symptomatic that Muslims overall seem to be much more friendly to Christianity and Christians than Christians are to Islam and Muslims. It's, it's yeah, unfortunately. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the Christians have been brainwashed for decades by the evil Muslims. And, uh, I mean, this goes back, uh, to Jack Shaheen's, um, uh, book, real R E E L bad Arabs, where he analyzes Arabs and Muslims in, uh, uh, movies and cartoons and things go back to the beginning of, mo- of motion pictures almost. And, uh, you, you see how, uh, they're uh, mocked and, and denigrated. And, uh, uh, one instance I well remember in, uh, uh, the movie that made Audrey Hepburn a star, Roman Holiday, at the end of the picture, she's this princess receiving, uh, the press corps from all over the world in Rome. And they go through the New York Times and the, this, uh, the London Times and this paper and that paper. And the only paper from the Middle East that's mentioned is the Times of Israel. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is another way of denigrating the, uh, the Arab and the Muslim. They just, they don't exist. They don't write. They don't have newspapers. Uh, they're not intellectuals and so forth. Uh, despite the fact that most of Western science is based on, and medicine is based on what, uh, Muslims did a thousand years ago. Well, the Times of Israel, huh? They could have at least picked Haaretz, which is a halfway decent paper. The Times of Israel <laughs> is a totally whack job, you know, Netanyahu, psycho, genocidal mm-hmm. Zionist uh, all the time, whereas Haaretz is actually pretty good. Haaretz covers Middle Eastern issues better than the New York Times does. But, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. There, there is that kind of prejudice, and it, uh, it, it, I think the Muslims tend to be friendly towards Christians in part because it's right there in the scriptures, especially, well, the Quran has says mm-hmm. that the best the people will be the best friends of the Muslims will be those who say we are Christians. And that's because mm-hmm. they, what they have, uh, they have monks, uh, and, and, uh, you know, devoted pious, uh, religious people. They're not arrogant. Yeah. So it's, it's very complimentary yeah. towards Christians really. And then there's the, of course, the very important covenants, uh, of the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, with the Christians of the world that enjoin all Muslims to protect Christians till the end of time. And mm. that, yeah, that, a lot of people don't even know about that, but they've been a big part of 
uh, Muslim political bodies forever. So there is this weird asymmetry where the Christians have tended to really be hostile, pretty systematically hostile to Islam and Muslims, whereas for the most part, Muslims have, have not been. They've been actually very friendly, mm-hmm. with a few exceptions, like with ISIS and so on, manufactured by the usual suspects. You know, we have these crazy mm-hmm. psycho pseudo-Muslim groups like ISIS, but the vast majority of Muslims are actually pretty pro-Christian, and they all love Jesus, pray for his return. Whenever I tell Christians that, mm-hmm. they, their mind boggles. What? <laughs> Muslims are all praying. Yeah. They consider Jesus the one and only true Messiah, and they pray for his return. What's? <laughs> we never learned that. Yeah. Yeah. He's seen as a prophet, and he will return at the, uh, at the end of time uh, to judge the living and the dead. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and of course, let's we don't want to you know alienate our Jewish listeners here, but let's face it, the Jewish religion does have a very different tradition that very strongly rejects and even uh, insults Jesus, and they deny that he's a Messiah. They say he was something I won't even repeat, and they are looking forward to a military conqueror who will conquer all of the non-Jews and bring in the millennium, which apparently will be the Jews ruling over enslaved goys, according to quite a few of the <laughs> traditional Jewish rabbis now, of course. There are interpretations of Judaism that are very different from that, much more humane. So I'm not, we're not going to lump all Jews together or anything like that. But the basic you know, traditional Jewish religion just does have a really different view of Jesus and of the Messiah, whereas Christianity and Islam totally agree. Jesus is the Messiah. Mm. And I think that's kind of obvious and kind of important. And for some reason, it's totally ignored in the media. Yeah, uh, which is typical of the media, which is managed by, what, five or six corporations uh, whose uh, names are not uh, Muslim or Buddhist or uh, anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> very, very, very interesting stuff. So uh, so you're back from Iran, and I take it that you didn't get any kind of interrogation or anything like that when you were... No, uh, no. Yeah, yeah me either. <laughs> Yeah, it's it. it I, I've actually kind of wondered about that because you know, the only time I ever had a serious interrogation, you know, detention type of thing, mm-hmm. coming back from anywhere was coming back from Western Europe. I'd gone through uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany, uh, talking to Turkish mm-hmm. communities with a, a professor from UW Milwaukee, and then we got held and detained on the way back. Huh. We had and we couldn't even use the bathroom for like three hours. It was it was actually kind of unpleasant. And the guy who was there to pick us up had no idea what happened to us. For all he knew, we disappeared off the face of the earth. And then finally, when the person showed up to quote unquote interrogate us, it was a guy with a Muslim name but a perfect English, you know, American English accent, who turned out to be a fan of my work, and I ended up autographing books for him. <laughs> so that was that was weird. But uh coming back from Iran, uh I've never had to do any more than like, you know, one once I just the guy says, "Well, what'd you do in Iran?" I gave him the 1-minute version, he waved me on. Other than that, mm-hmm. not even a greeting from the authorities. So yeah. but yeah, but, with, <laughs> yeah. Weird. Yeah, with with me, it was the, the hardest part was getting through the the mob to the immigration officer. Of course, they're understaffed and uh, it took me an hour to get through. Uh, but uh, Wayne Madsen told me years ago he came back from Iran, and he got the treatment. They had unwrapped all the gifts he had very carefully packed away in his suitcase and took his cell phone and went through it and things like this, and he was kept hours in uh, in inspection. Yeah, I think Art Olivier had a really bad uh, 
greeting from the authorities when he came back from Iran once too. So I, I don't know what that's all about. But this time I was kind of a little suspicious about what might happen because back in 2019, as you recall, we had been planning to go to a conference sponsored by the former NGO New Horizon and the FBI suddenly went and contacted all of these Americans, a whole bunch of us who were invited yeah, yeah. And, and told us that we would be arrested when we stepped off the plane on the way home if we went to this conference. Because, as you said, it, Sigel Mandelkar, the Israeli uh, Treasury Department sanctions enforcement czar, had decided that New Horizon was some kind of whatever terrorist group, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, they tied to, they oh, they're anti-Semitic, too. Oh, of course. And, yeah. of course, they Holocaust the deniers, yeah. advice. Yeah. And Nico Pellet there, the Israeli American. So I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's how you push this viewpoint through and then uh, uh, stamp out any uh, possible opposing thought or idea or fact. Yeah, my, my t- take on it is they just don't want ordinary Americans to be doing citizen diplomacy with Iranians, mm-hmm. and especially dissident yeah. intellectual types hanging around with Iranians and finding all this common ground. It's kind of their their ultimate nightmare, I think, when E. Michael Jones goes to Iran and calls Tehran the capital of the free world, and you suddenly see the possibility of this kind of Catholic uh, Muslim alliance. And I think mm-hmm. the, the people in charge, especially the Zionists, find that threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, I found my, my time in Iran extremely relaxing, and I'm back here in the the state of confusion, and uh, I wound up like a spring and ready to bite somebody's head off. But while I was there and being run from Shiraz to Kerman to various sites in, in Tehran, uh, walked my legs off, and w- w- I was busy every minute of the day, and I was fine. I enjoyed it. It was great. Exhilarating, in fact. Yeah, I always have a good time in Iran, too. And so... Maybe, uh, inshallah, we'll get more invitations from universities. Inshallah, maybe I'll actually get a chance to speak at whichever university invites me next mm. time. Yeah, I, I yeah. felt kind of bad about having to, to rush back, but it was, there was all, I guess it took them a while to process the visa. And yeah. finally, when the dates were selected, it just happened to be these dates where I already had a prior commitment to go out to David Ray Griffin's mm. memorial. But, uh, next time, maybe uh, it'll work in, inshallah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, Mike, that, you know, you wrote this uh, classic book, uh, Visas for Al-Qaeda, uh, the handouts that rocked the world. And that same method of sort of weaponizing uh, sort of mercenary, you know, fanatics and or mercenaries, sometimes mercenaries mm-hmm. playing the role of fanatics, seems to be still out there, whether it's the neo-Nazis in Ukraine or the ISIS and Al-Qaeda types that the same CIA folks that were having Mm -hmm. your uh, embassy or consulate or whatever in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, uh, issue visas to Al-Qaeda members to come to the United States, they're they're still working with those kinds of people and going after Iran, sending terrorists into Iran. Uh, It's it's kind of shocking. (laughs) But the American people still don't seem to have waken up. I guess they all have to read your book. Yeah, and I, I don't know whether they're going to do that. I, I always refer to Americans as being pig stupid and badly educated. I mean, they're not traveled. Uh, if they go to five states, as one German uh, uh, local hire in Stuttgart told me, they're well-traveled. Uh, they don't go to uh, Europe except to see uh, France or Germany as some kind of Disneyland and looking for America rather than looking for Germany or France. 
and uh, it's uh, they don't speak any known languages. Uh, and of course, the United States is bordered by two countries, one of which speaks English. So uh, it's, it's it's an awful lot of education that's got to be done. Especially because the United States is currently the global hegemon, although maybe not for much longer. And mm-hmm. you'd think that an empire that is essentially trying to rule the world would be full of people who are interested in the world. They would become experts on various parts of the world, and they would learn languages, and they would see themselves as responsible administrators of the various provinces that their empire is ruling over. But <laughs> the American people, you know, as that video, you know, Who Should America Attack Next shows, mm. you know, they, they can't find those simple, obvious countries on the map. And this leads us to the realization that the American empire probably isn't long for this world. I don't think the American people even really want an empire, which is why they're mm-hmm. not interested in the provinces. And I had an interesting interview earlier with John Carter, who wrote an article about how the U.S. can't possibly win this World War III that we're basically already in now. And he wonders whether that looming defeat of the United States in this World War III that we're in might not be intentional. That is, it's they're like throwing the match. They're deliberately getting into a situation where they know they're going to lose. His theory would be that the global plutocratic elite as the oligarchs, the Western bankster oligarchs, who are the real power behind the empire, may decide that they'd be better off if they took down the U.S. and eliminated the American Constitution, which provides for all these individual rights, so they can more easily administer their global slave plantation. And I I told him, well, that sounds Mm. like a paranoid right-wing conspiracy theory, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. (laughs) Uh, What do you think? Is, Is John being paranoid or is he being realistic? Well, at first when he started, I said, oh, this is nonsense. This, this guy is, is uh, has his head in a bucket someplace. Uh, but then when you look at it, uh, if you break up the United States and break up Europe, uh, you've got the banksters and the oligarchs and uh, the Soros types uh, out there, the deep state, figuring, well, we can make more money out of doing this than we can out of simply trying to uh, administer Iran or administer uh, India or someplace like this, let uh, Narendra Modi uh, use his money to influence elections in the state of Maryland, for example. Uh, so I, I think there may be, on balance, there may be uh, more to that than first appears. Yeah, I, I wouldn't completely discount it. Still, I think that it's more likely that what we're seeing is a combination of fanaticism and arrogance and hubris and incompetence. It seems to me that these, well, the Americans leadership in general and the neocons in particular are just uh, completely uh, convinced that they are God's gift to the world Mm -hmm. and that they can do no wrong and that they don't have to play by the same rules that everybody else plays by. And so, they are getting themselves into this losing situation basically mm-hmm. through incompetence and hubris. And that's kind of what Seymour Hersh seemed to apply in his article about mm-hmm. how Biden's people, you know, those neocons around Biden blew up the pipeline uh, mm-hmm. that uh, he says he doesn't think they even thought it through. I guess this was in the interview he did yeah. after the article. He, he says they mm-hmm. just, they just do stuff, you know, thinking, Oh, Hey, this will be a real, this will strike a blow against Russia. And they don't stop mm-hmm. and think through the consequences. And so you multiply that yeah. by all these other crazy things they do. And maybe they're not intentionally losing the war, 
they're just idiots. Well, it's 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 they're doing it the way they've always done it. It, it. This is the playbook. We had this lined out in Yugoslavia, and it worked. We improved upon our uh, propaganda and mind control, uh, and sold the uh, the idea of yes, we can destroy Iraq. And of course, we have to take out Syria and that, that bad boy Muammar Gaddafi because he wants to unify Africa, and he's doing terrible things like lending money uh, at little or no cost to. Uh, uh, his people to build houses and send their kids to school and so forth. We can't have so that. It's, uh, uh, each, each time around, uh, you know, they, they're protecting their uh, propaganda. Look what they've done with the uh, uh, the Frankenshots and the uh, this, this virus thing. I mean, uh, I came back and I was sick from all these coughing, wheezing, sneezing Indians on the plane. And every time I mentioned this to somebody I knew, relatives or otherwise, oh, you have the virus. You have the virus. It's lasting so long. Go to the hospital. <laughs> Get on a ventilator. No, quick, the quick. Cold. <laughs> no, I mean, my God. Uh, Put on your mask. My doctor, my doctor probably gave me some antibiotics and some prednisone for the cough that was making my chest hurt. I'm considerably better. So it's, 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 it's real practice at, at, at propaganda and psychological operations. And I think they're so wrapped up in this that, well, it's worked before and it's working now and it'll work the next time around. Well, speaking of the question of, you know, is it stupidity and hubris or, or is it a conspiracy? Uh, the business of masking is another such question. Because the New York Times just published this article by Brett Stephens that actually tells the truth, which is that masks just don't work. It, it isn't that, well, you know, we're still waiting for the uh, data. No, the, the data's in. And this you know, huge mega meta study shows clearly that, that masks just don't make any difference. None of them mm-hmm. do nothing. And, you know, N95s and, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, this is what basically I've been saying and all the people I know have been saying since pretty much, what was it, April or May or whenever, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it was when Fauci yeah. did the U-turn, right? And, you know, <laughs> before he said, oh, don't, masks don't work, don't use them. And then mm-hmm. he turned around on one day and basically pivoted instantly and said, oh, actually, yeah, they do work. Use them. And then later he said, well, I just lied to people because we wanted to keep the masks for the first responders. Okay, Tony. Yeah, so you just lied to us to manipulate us and you admitted it. I guess that shows you're a pretty honest guy uh, to admit it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, now the New York Times, speaking of honest guys, is is telling us that, okay, the science is in. It's clear. Masks don't work. The crazy anti-vaxxer, anti-masker people were right. And those of us who were insisting everybody had to mask up were wrong. Um, oh, well, let's move on. <laughs> Conspiracy yeah, theorists I, mean, I, I was talking. <laughs> I was talking to my eye doctor just the other day about masks. And uh, uh, she said a lot of people feel safe and part of the crowd by wearing the muzzle than, than they would if they weren't wearing it. And, uh, you know, this accounts for the people riding in closed cars uh, with their muzzles on. Yeah, what's with that? I know you see you see the people and you see people like jogging outdoors far away from other people. There's zero transmission risk, essentially, outdoors anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what's, the, the whole thing, all, you know, it struck me from the get-go that there's, there's something wrong here. Well, now that, you know, the, the, the science is in on the masks and even the New York Times mm-hmm. is admitting it, that it, it does make you wonder, was this whole masking thing, was it 
stupidity? Did they actually think maybe it'll help? Was it all about psychological manipulation? Let's get people to do some crazy things just because we tell them to. And if so, was that psychological manipulation related to the bio war drill that 9-11, or I'm sorry, that COVID probably was, that COVID, you know, was probably a bio attack on China and Iran, as we've, I've talked about a lot. Ron Unz mm. develops that in his book. But it was probably to some extent not only an actual attack designed to slow chi- the Chinese economy and try to shrink the gap between Chinese growth and U.S. growth, but also it was a sort of a drill that was helping the the side that did it to try to get ahead in the biowar game. And so they're going to have to condition people to doing what they say. They're going to have to you know do all this bio-preparedness type stuff. And, of course, they're also going to test out their mRNA technology with these vaccines. And if mRNA technology works really well so you can whip out vaccines really fast to the latest variant or the latest bioweapon that gets released, then whoever owns the mRNA technology rules the world. And that would be the U.S. because the U.S. and its empire are way ahead in mRNA technology. Mm. So maybe... If you know, maybe it's it's stupidity that they're they're too dumb to know what people like you and me mm-hmm. knew, which is that the evidence seems to show that there's really can't be any significant advantage to masking. We we saw that back in early 2020. Uh, so are they stupid, or are they just power freaks who like to force people to do insane things when they're ordered to, or is there a sort of bio warfare? Uh, agenda to telling people to obey orders, follow the biowar protocol? Well, I think it's all free, plus the fact that it's a psychological uh, experiment to control people and to get them to conform uh, for the next step, whatever that might be. And if you think about the damage this caused, you know, so Brett Stevens, mm-hmm. New York Times, they, they admit that this, it was totally useless. There was absolutely no point whatsoever mm-hmm. in anybody bothering to wear a mask. Uh, it has nothing to do with COVID. It doesn't stop COVID. No evidence it does. But these poor kids in the schools had to cover their faces. And, you know, mm-hmm. half of human communication is, is the facial expressions. Our brains yeah, are wired yeah. to, to see thousands of little nuances in facial expressions. And these kids, you know, were stunted and we're seeing, you know, the effects of that now with lagging educational rates and massive psychological problems mm. because these kids were abused by being forced to take part in this horrific experiment. And, and you know, maybe I mean, next year, Stevens is going to admit in the New York Times that the vax turns out <laughs> to be uh, not what we were told as well. So this, this yeah, yeah, yeah. child abuse and population abuse on a massive scale, it's, uh, it's just mind-boggling. And can they just, like, admit it in the New York Times and then walk away with no consequences? Sure. They've done it all the time. <laughs> Why not? The uh, you know you're breathing all of your exhaled vapors, all that carbon dioxide, and then uh, you're not really getting fresh air unless you've got a, a nice porous mask on. So uh, it's uh, it's probably part of the dumbing down of the kids. I keep reading articles in the paper, admittedly it's the Washington Post, which doesn't tell the uh, the true story half the time. Uh, they're always going on about. Uh, the kids have fallen behind substantially in, in school through homeschooling, computer schooling, uh, wearing muzzles in class, and so forth. So uh, I, I think it's really harmed the the educational system in the U.S., which wasn't good to begin with. Nothing compared to what's going on in Europe, say in Germany, or maybe in Japan. Well, here in the U.S., I think it has dumbed people down perhaps more than anywhere else, as far as I can tell. And you know, speaking mm. of dumbing people down, YouTube 
purged pretty much every YouTube channel with any significant audience that did things like questioning whether masks work. And now we know that all those purged channels were right. And all of the channels that weren't purged, that were going along with the masks and saying masks work, they were wrong. And they caused tremendous damage. So I think I'm going to write to the president of YouTube, whoever that is, and tell them not only do they have to reinstate my channel, uh, which was taken down allegedly for COVID misinformation, like my insistence that there's no evidence that masks really work, uh, and and then they should take down all the channels of everybody that went along with the masking. And if, mm. they, if they did that, then, you know, there'd be a lot fewer channels, but there would be a lot fewer stupid channels run by idiots regurgitating <laughs> mainstream pablum and the collective intelligence of the world in general and the American people in particular would rise precipitously. So I, I think they need to just go out and nuke every single channel that went along with masking and reinstate every single channel that didn't. What do you think? I like that. And I think pablum is too mild to work for what they've been dishing out. Yeah, it's probably something that you know goes out the other end rather than go- comes in that end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, we only have five minutes left here, Mike. Uh, do you want to like plug any horses in the horse race or uh, uh, predict who's going to win the uh, the Big Ten tournament or anything like that? <laughs> I don't think so. That's that's beyond my ken. Uh, all I can say, I guess, is to uh, keep reading uh, your Substack and my Substack and uh, uh, other sensible Substacks to get the, the real story and the alternative view of reality. And then who's going to the real view of reality? And and how about Ukraine? I mean, this thing's getting really crazy. Where uh, you know we keep doubling down, or we uh, Biden or whoever uh, Zelensky, they, those guys keep doubling down, and pretty soon it's going to be an existential issue for the U.S. as well as Russia. It's yeah, always been yeah. one for Russia. So where's that all going? Well, I mean, they they don't believe uh, Vladimir Impaler when he says you're encroaching on my borders, you're threatening us. Uh, we don't like this, and uh, if you keep this up, we're going to have war. And they got war after keeping it up, and now he's he's making it very clear that uh, you keep threatening us again, and it's going to be nuke them in the dark and shoot them when they glow, and somehow this doesn't sink in. Well, you know, I, I do have to call you out on calling him Vlad the Impaler. That was actually a, an earlier <laughs> Vlad. This particular Vlad is Vlad yeah. the Exhaler. And that's because that, um, you know, Clinton, of course, said that he never inhaled. Well, uh, Vlad, he never denied exhaling. So that's why we call him Vlad the Exhaler. Uh, yeah, you learn all well, kinds of interesting you. tidbits on this show, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And then the, the, the local classical station is doing nothing but playing Ukrainian music by Ukrainian artists. And uh, I, I'm choking on it because they, they keep going on about, oh, this is a, the one-year anniversary of the evil Russian attack on the Ukraine. And uh, they just don't seem to get the uh, with the program. And I keep sending them nasty notes, and they, which they, of course, ignore. Yeah, when, when is this Ukrainian fad going to completely wear off? Right. Okay, so masking, now that's been done. We hope. We we hope that that's now been cleared up and we're not going to be tortured with those masks anymore. But those Ukrainian flags, a lot of them are still flying just down the road from me. Oh, in yeah. R- Richland Center, Wisconsin, there's some like public building, I forget what it is, that's, that's flying the Ukrainian flag. 
And, uh, man, I, I, it, it bothers me. I mean, this is paid for by our tax money. They're American taxpayers, local people here. Why are we being sucked into this insane neocon crusade to make life difficult for Russia and, and break it up and destroy it? Uh, that's, it, it's, it's just pathetic the way people have been misled about that and so many other things. Yeah, it's poked in the uh, gardens in front of people's houses. The, the British embassy flies this huge Ukrainian flag on Massachusetts Avenue. I mean, it's just disgusting. Yeah. So how long will it be though, before, before this, you know, something changes I and mean, is it this, this war of attrition can't go on, you know, for how many more years, right? But I mean, theoretically yeah, it could. Yeah. Right. The, well, I've seen the videos of the Wagner Group uh, boxing up dead Yuki soldiers, packing them in trucks, and shipping them off to Zelensky and his his buddy boys. So uh, they, uh, I mean, you you wish you could see such patriotism in the United States or in France or Germany or Britain or somewhere, and directed at their own country and supporting their own country. But no, we're supporting a, a gang that. Uh, uh, doesn't want the Russian Orthodox Church to operate. Uh, religion is bad in the Ukraine, apparently, unless it's their religion. Uh, and uh, well, but wait a minute, that that is their religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the Russian religion. The Ukraine religion is something different. It's a it's a freaking uh, Orthodox, Orthodox yeah. Church, and they speak exactly. Russian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that isn't a whole lot of difference between the Russian Orthodox. And say the I don't know the uh, the Greek Orthodox right, but, but in Ukraine it's, but it's basically the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. That's what it is. Yeah, that's yeah, their religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's completely insane. What um, what what are we going to do? Well, uh, I would hope that the Germans would notice uh, Cy Hirsch's article and start to scratch their heads over whether this attack on their country by Joe Biden. Uh, is really the kind of thing that they have to sit still for. I mean, are the Germans ever going to wake up and grow a spine? No, I don't think so. I mean, they were uh, doing it at one point with the Alternative for Germany party, expanding by leaps and bounds, and then Merkel and her uh, extremists started clamping down on them and pounding the journalist Manuel Oxenreiter out of the country, uh, blaming him for all kinds of stuff and accusing him of all kinds of crimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Germans are cold because of uh, stupid decisions made by their government uh, at the instigation of the American government. And I, I just don't see it. Uh, they are uh, they're having marches in, in German cities now against this nonsense. But uh, it's played down. And uh, I don't know whether they're going to get enough people to make a real difference or not. But people have been fed up with the German government for years. Yeah, the Germans seem to be kind of passive-aggressive in terms of pursuing their national interests. They can never admit that they're just going to stand up for their national interests and do it directly and responsibly and sensibly and so on, because standing up directly and openly for your national interest would be too much like Hitler, and he discredited that. So instead, they have to really pretend to be sort of globalist and politically correct and this and that, but they still passively-aggressively sometimes do pursue their national interests, like when they busted up the Balkans after the end of the Cold War. There are all these cases mm -hmm. where they actually do uh, that. So maybe in this case, somebody who's lost a lot of money on this pipeline sabotage, this terrorism by Biden and his friends, uh, some of these German industrialists who've lost their shirts, maybe some of them have enough money and power to influence German politics to change things. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's my hope anyway. Inshallah. Inshallah. And that's the end of the show and a good last word for 
Truth Jihad Radio. Well, thank you, J. Michael Springman. Always good to hear from you, and it's a nice change from False Flag Weekly News where you just talk about anything we want in no particular order. <laughs> well, I thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Okay, likewise. Take care, Mike. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's J. Michael Springman, author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, Handouts that Rock the World. I'm Kevin Barrett of kevinbarrett.substack.com. See you next time.